Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Melissa Harrison tells us all about her latest novel, All Among the Barley. Melissa Harrison is the author of the novels Clay and At Hawthorne Time, which was shortlisted for the Costa Novel Award and longlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize, and one work of non-fiction, Rain, which was longlisted for the Wainwright Prize. She is a nature writer, critic, and a columnist for The Times, The Financial Times, and The Guardian, among others. And Melissa's latest novel, which we're going to talk about today, is All Among the Barley. Melissa, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. How would you describe All Among the Barley? It is a novel set in 1934, in the years between the wars, and it's set on uh, an arable farm in East Anglia. And it's a period when horsepower was giving way to mechanisation, and that's what I was first interested in. As I was writing the book, uh, events caught up with me a little bit, and what had been very far on the horizon, which was, you know, the EU referendum and, and the Trump presidency, and, you know, were quite unimaginable to me at the beginning, suddenly became very real, and I realised that... I was writing a book set in the 30s and that carried a certain kind of weight and meaning and uh, I was going to have to make the book a lot bigger and I was going to have to be a lot braver and the book changed a great deal in the, in the process of writing. And we'll talk about how a bit later on perhaps. So Edie Mather, who is your narrator, tell us who she is. She's a, a 14-year-old girl. Um, she's the youngest in her family and she is a little bit lost. She's somebody for whom everyone seems to have a plan for her future except her. She's rendered without agency by the adults around her, as I think a lot of children are. And she's very vulnerable. She's also vulnerable because she is unhappy but doesn't realise it in the way that I didn't realise I was unhappy at that age because what have you got to compare it to? So she's a bit of a lightning rod for all sorts of influences and the book is in part about her, her discovering her own power, perhaps getting it wrong but finding some kind of agency of her own. And the book is set, so it's narrated by Edie, and we won't necessarily talk about why, but from the distance, from, like, the future, basically. Um, Tell me why you chose to do that. Well, I wanted to write in the first person because I'd never done it before, and I didn't think I could, so that was a bit of a challenge to myself. I discovered as I was writing it that... The first draft, I think, when I, when I sent it to my agent, she couldn't really get into Edie's head, even though it was written um, without any of the interjections from her, her later self. Um, so I'd written it very closely from the perspective of a 14-year-old girl, but that means that you miss out on 
any adult insights at all and you're really um, asking a lot of the reader to understand what's happening if you've got no ability to comment on the mistakes that that she's making and the danger she's in so I had to bring in a lot more of the older Edie to help the reader understand what was happening and before we talk about other characters I want to talk about Witch Farm and and the village itself because you're very much a writer of place and the the farm is really another character in the book and so let's talk about well first of all describe Witch Farm for us and then perhaps we can talk about inventing that place. Mm. Um, I love that part of it actually the the kind of world building part of it. I've always uh, written about farming in some in some form, even in my first book, Clay, which was set in, in a city, one of the characters was a Polish immigrant who used to have a, a pig farm. And my second book was set in and around a dairy farming community. And this time I wanted to write about arable farming. And the place to go if you want to write about that is East Anglia, because that's our great arable heartland. It's our great fertile acres. And I was very interested in the writing of um, somebody called Adrian Bell, who wrote extensively about farming during that period. And writers like Ronald Blythe, who's still with us today, an absolutely fantastic writer, he, he wrote Aikenfield, and he still writes for the, the Church Times, the most wonderful column about village life. And people like A.J. Street, who wrote Farmer's Glory, and I was really fascinated by this world that still had the vestiges of, of folklore and, and kind of magical beliefs that had held sway for century after century, and then disappeared very quickly in the interwar years. I mean, partly as a result of of the great shock of war, and partly because of mechanisation, and the fact that agriculture suddenly had a great deal more science in it. So we were understanding things very quickly about soil productivity and health and things like that. And it it wasn't important anymore to, you know, gather the last sheaf and plough it back into the land in January, because we knew what would make a fertile year. And so a lot of richness was lost quite quickly, it seems to me, and I found that really fascinating, what, you know, what, what it would do to a family over, over several generations. So that's why I wanted to, to set it in that world. The, the farm itself, I didn't want to write about a huge farm with acres that nobody really knew. I wanted to write about a small farm where the people living on it would know every single foot. So it's 60 acres and it's a tenant farm. So it's the land is owned by the local landowner. And during that period, a lot of uh, the big estates were selling off land, partly, again, as a result of, of the First World War. And it was an agricultural depression. Um, and there was a lot of precarity, which we're seeing again today, you know, um, not just in the farming sector. So there was a huge depression going on. And, and there were armies of, of homeless men just on the roads looking for work. So again, there were these sort of parallels that, that seem to be getting stronger and stronger with today as I wrote the book. So let's talk about other characters that inhabit the farm. Who else? We've talked about Edie. Who else is there on the farm? Well, she lives with her parents um, and her brother, Frank. Her sister, Mary, has uh, moved out a year ago. She's got married and had a baby. And when Edie looks at Mary's life, it doesn't look that appealing. You know, I think we, we, we look back and we... We talk a great deal about, um, well, certainly in, in the nature writing world, there's there's quite an interest in some of the forms of male labour, which can be sort of lionised. So um, things like using hand tools, there's a great mystique about how you would use a scythe. Nobody really talks about the work that women did. So, you know, wash day when you'd use a, a dolly all day and your hands would bleed. So I wanted to, to show that although we've got a great deal of nostalgia for the past and we keep looking back at this golden age, for a lot of people, life was pure drudgery, um, particularly women. Child mortality was through the roof. So, so Edie's looking at Mary and thinking, well, that's not really what I want. 
And she's looking around her and there aren't that many other opportunities, you know, apart from teaching or nursing, really. The other people on the farm are uh, the two farm workers. There's Doble, who's uh, an old, very old man, um, bent like a twig, as a lot of these labourers did end up at quite a young age, actually. And he lost his son in the war. He was blown up uh, by a shell, which um, Edie and her brother find quite fascinating, as I think kids probably did at that time. It was it was quite recent, you know, this was living memory. And there is John, who's the horseman. He's referred to as the head horseman, though there's only him there. Um, but it's a sort of throwback to the times when the bigger farms, even a farm of 60 acres would have more horses and you might have a you know, head horseman and an under horseman. And John is somebody who is probably the last generation to be initiated into the old rituals of horse magic, which were really prevalent and almost like a secret society for many years. Um, No one would talk about how you controlled horses. It was a great secret world. It's now thought that a lot of it was done with herbs and and smells, but um, nobody's really sure still. A lot of it's still quite mysterious, the fact that you could stop a horse in its tracks and, and you know, everyone else could try and ask it to move forward and it wouldn't. The fact that you could, you know, it was called charming the horses. So John still has enormous pride in his work, but is still living by these old beliefs that are loosening their hold. And Edie's surrounded by that mixture of, of... farming pragmatism from her father and magic from from John, who's a much kinder figure than both of her parents, actually. And I wanted to talk about John. He's this great sort of brooding presence there on the farm and he's, he's an outsider as well. He's, like, come from, you know, a few quite miles a distance away. away. But, yeah, yeah, he's a foreigner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then there's all of these tensions between George, Edie's father, and John um, as sort of boss, as sort of, you know, master and worker um, politically because one of them went away to the war and didn't. And in other ways that we won't go into because we don't want to give too too much of the plot away. Tell me about this sort of like antagonism between him and him and George. Well some of it is is sort of male bravado. There's there's two men of a similar age on the farm, both who of whom are excellent farmers in different ways. So some of it's sort of peacocking, I guess. But also they come from very different political traditions and with John I wanted to shine a light on a different kind of a kind of a different kind of nostalgia about what it is to be to be english actually rather than british i think which is the the kind of radical thread in english history and it's it's another way of being proud of our heritage that that perhaps is i hope is perhaps a little bit healthier than some of the strands we've been seeing recently you know that's something we should be very proud of our, our tradition of radicalism Tell me some more, we touched on it, but tell me some more about creating the world, particularly the village. So there's this village, uh, Elmbourne, which is the farm is just outside of. Well, it, it's actually partly loosely set based on a Suffolk village, but I'm not going to tell you which one. I went out to Suffolk, which was somewhere I didn't really know at the time, though I've moved there now and I live there, to do some research. And I went at different times of the summer so that I could see the crops at different stages. Although I then later learned that all of the arable crops were different varieties in the past and grew in different ways and didn't look like they look now, so that was interesting. But the sort of general street plan is is based on a a Suffolk village. And I drew uh, maps as I was writing because I I wanted to be consistent with where things were and people turning left and right and, you know, north and south. And so I based the initial map roughly on that village. And then the the maps have been beautifully drawn by the artist Neil Gower and... uh, there's one of the village and one of the farm itself. And they were. it was really important to me right from the start to have those because I think it made the writing richer and it made me more confident in moving people around and it made the world more concrete and less abstract to me 
and I, I hope that's come across in the in the finished book. And I want to talk more about the again the time period that the book is set in is sort of between the wars. So obviously there is the effect that the First World War had on the workforce. I mean, in terms of sheer numbers, um, in terms of the fact that women and indeed Ada's mother has been. Horsewoman, well, Edie's mother Ada, yes. <laughs> Edie's mother Ada has been um, has been the horsewoman while That's right. while John was away fighting in the war. Um, but also, this is the point where that feudal system of the fact that they're tenant farmers is starting to fall apart as well. That's right. It is. It's breaking down. Um, it seems to me that the war cast such a long shadow, partly in the loss of skills. There were men who who didn't come back, who were the only people in a valley, which at that time was a you know was your district. People didn't travel that much. They might be the only man who could thatch a rick well, or who could um, store uh, chaff safe from rats. And suddenly, all of that skill was lost very very quickly. At that time, the implements that people used were were made for each individual and. I remember finding out at the uh, Museum of English Rural Life, they've got tools there that were made for people that went to war and didn't come back and they are particular shapes or they're left-handed or or whatever because they were made for individuals. And I, I found it completely, utterly heartbreaking to see those tools and to read the stories of how they were found hanging up in barns. They hadn't been touched since. And I thought, you know, if that moves me so much at such a remove of years, what was that like in the immediate years after the war? to be going to get your scythe from the barn and taking it off a peg on the wall next to a scythe from someone you knew who was never coming back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to Melissa Harrison and we're talking about her latest novel, All Among the Barley. And Melissa, the book follows 
the fortunes of a, I guess, a farming, a particular farming year at this point between the wars. But also into this story um, and the catalyst for a lot of the things that happen in the book is a woman, Constance Fitzalan, who turns up in the village. Who is she? Oh, I don't want to give too much away. Um, she comes from London and she she has all sorts of of new and old ideas. She wants to make a study of country ways. She wants to write down all of the old traditions and recipes and, and folklore and preserve it. But she has an agenda and it's not just to do with preserving the past. She has new political beliefs which are slowly revealed as the book goes on. Um, I guess I was thinking quite a lot about some of the preservationist strands in nature writing, which we, we see still today, and which I feel in me as well. You know, I have this deep love of, of wild places, or as wild as they are in this country, and, and a long longing to preserve them. But there is a flip side to that, and there's a flip side to fetishising rural places and fetishising the past and fetishising the connection between people and place. And if you do that too much... If you say that only certain people can understand a place or be connected with it, that can lead you somewhere very dark. And I think right now we all have a a duty to be very careful about how we think and talk about these things. And so the book was in part a meditation on that and and an interrogation of the the kind of the thread of nostalgia that I think we have in this country to do with rural places and... The fact that rural places are where part of our identity resides. But if, we, if we're not careful with that, what you end up with is a vision of England that is pre-Windrush, that is white, that is middle class, and that is exclusive and excluding. But it's a vision that I, 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 am, you know, I am in love with. Um, and that's hard to think about. That's hard to recognise in myself. My grandmother was Anglo-Indian, and my mother was born and brought up in, in Pakistan, what's now Pakistan. And she was brought up on a diet of books about home, which was somewhere she hadn't been, which painted England in, in a really luminous light. And so the books she read us as kids were these great classics. It was Lark Rides to Candleford, it was Cider with Rosie, um, it was Alison Utley's A Country Child, books like that. And that's what I, I grew up in love with about the English countryside. But it's not, it's not enough to simply accept that as the vision of what things should be like and where we should go, not not anymore. And to be fair, you can read Tarka the Otter as a kid happily without knowing that its author was, a, you know, basically a fascist. Yes, and I did, and I still love it, and that's really troubling to me. I mean, I, it's it's probably, it's, well, it's definitely in my top three books about nature in the countryside and, and will continue to be, but, God, you know, Henry Williamson was so damaged by war. I mean, he was a... He was probably a damaged individual before the war, but he fought in the trenches and he came back a pacifist. He, what he wanted to do was to prevent war ever happening again. He wanted to go back to the eternal verities, one of which was a connection to nature. He wanted brotherhood with Germany and his thinking, which I think started out somewhere good, took him somewhere really, really bad. And that's really worth thinking about now, I think. And while we won't talk about explicitly what happens in the book 
you've already we've already talked about you know the the rough idea so let's talk about what some of the organizations that were around in the 1930s that rural people might have been attracted to mm. well i mean everyone knows about the 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 buf the british union of fascists which um isn't mentioned in the book at all in fact the word fascism isn't mentioned in the book for good reason i think and that was headed up by Oswald Mosley, who, again, isn't mentioned in the book. What is mentioned is an invented order, which I based on the fact that there were dozens and dozens of little proto-fascist groups that sprang up in this country between the wars. And some were um, crank outfits, you know, nothing, a couple of people, a couple of leaflets um, fizzled out. Some were bigger and more dangerous a lot of them had people in common who were, you know, in one and then in another, and, and it was quite incestuous. Some of them recruited suffragettes because, I mean, the, the BUF had the highest numbers of, of women in its top tiers of any other political party in that time. And these were women who um, had had a taste of political campaigning and of agency and making a difference. And then, you know, they were looking around for ways to, to remake the country. And let's not forget that the word fascism was not a dirty word at the time. It wasn't, it didn't have any of the connotations it has now. It was a way to make things new after the, the enormous trauma of war, which I think we, we underestimate now. But, you know, it was based on dividing rather than uniting people. And it was based on top-down leadership you know, we've learned to question those things. I hope we've learned to question those things. And indeed, Connie, you know, she turns up, she's a breath of fresh air. She turns up wearing men's clothes. She's formerly a, a suffragette herself. She shows Edie and, to a certain extent, Ada a new way, of, a different way of being, I guess. Yes, she does. And she's not... It was really important to me that she's not a bad person at all. She shows Edie kindness in a way that nobody else does. Nobody else listens to her. Nobody else treats her with any acceptance. You know, Connie says to her at one point, has nobody ever told you you're, you're perfectly all right exactly as you are? And it's a key moment for Edie, who's never been told she's all right by anyone. Connie isn't an avatar. She's not a, she's not a, a sort of poster woman for a set of beliefs. She's, she's a person who has good and, and bad about her, as, as we all do. You've mentioned the, the modern resonances, that the politics of of the story has. And also, of course, you know, in this Me Too world, the book has a um, an uncomfortable romance, in inverted commas, between um, Edie and uh, a local lad. Tell me about sort of writing that story now. Yeah, that was the other thing that really caught up with me as the book was going along. Um, I really felt like the real world was, was happening all around me. Um, and these were the, the things which I've been incubating privately and were suddenly... Oh, just blooming in, in, in a horrible way uh, in the real world. Yes, you know, I drew on personal experience for that scene and it was hard to write. I think that a lot of women will recognise some of the feelings in it. I hope they will. Well, no, I don't hope they've had that experience, but I hope that those that have find some kind of reflection in a way that's helpful to them. It was quite cathartic for me to write. I think the key thing for me was that Alf, the, the local lad is a nice boy. He's not, you know, he's not a villain. He's not a baddie. I mean, he is, but he's not seen that way. You know, he's funny and charming and, and everybody likes him. And I hope that until the point at which the difficult things happen, men reading it might, might like him and identify with him because the point is that it's not 
just bad men who do bad things. And just one more thing from me, and then I'll, I'll get you to read a bit of the book, if you would. We've already mentioned, I said that, you, you know, you're a, a writer of place and your, your previous novels were written very strongly around around a place. Um, and you mentioned a couple of writers at the beginning that were influences, but I wanted to talk about who else, basically. What other writers are an influence on this novel in particular? Ooh, um, on this novel, it, I was really uh, buried in the 1930s and writers from that period. Dorothy Hartley, I think, is is wonderful. She's Some people have said she must be a, a model for Connie. I mean, she isn't because she she was her politics were completely different. But the idea of uh, these sort of tall, eccentric women biking around the countryside and sleeping under hedges and recording people's recipes, you know, there are quite a few of them about, and I, I love that idea, you know. And there are several. She seems to be having a bit of a renaissance at the moment. But more generally, I think Alice Oswald is, is our greatest living writer of any genre she's a, a, a Devon poet and she is she does things with words that just aren't possible I mean they are but they're not <laughs> okay can I get you to um you can. Read us some. it was sometime near midnight when I awoke with the sense of something vast and obscure having fallen into place I had slept enough I knew straight away and I also knew that I must go to the horse pond it seemed in that moment very simple and I felt relieved for I'd not known what to do but now I understood that each thing would become clear when I came to it and that all I had to do was trust. I got up and pulled a cardigan over my nightdress, crept down the creaking stairs and put on my boots. The yard was quiet, its cobbles, the barn and dung heap lit by a bright full moon. The parish lantern grandfather sometimes called her, while Grandpa and Grandma said her name was Phoebe. I was glad of her now. On each stable door hung a hold stone on a loop of wire and a rusty iron nail, and now I took one down and gently eased the nail from the wood, hoping that the horses wouldn't startle and wake our horseman, John. Then I took the nail, raised my nightdress, and traced a witch mark gently with the point of it on my belly's pale, fine skin. I drew no blood, for I didn't need it to last more than an hour or two. One of the horses blew and stamped as I eased the old nail back into the wood, making my heart thump and sweat prickle under my arms. But above the stable, John did not stir. Only a couple of the farm cats saw me cross the moonlit yard and walk into the darkness under the elms. Father had scythed the margins of green leaves, and late in the afternoon, before she went to sit with Doble, Mother had sheaved and stooped to the corn he had cut. In the moonlight, it looked a little like the painting Miss Carter had shown us at school, and I wondered if perhaps she had meant it as a sign for me, one I was only now beginning to understand. There was a deep significance to everything I saw around me now, the black trees, the moon, the fields, and it was almost overwhelming. I knew I must learn to decipher its messages, or everything might be lost. Father would have had to walk through standing wheat to cut around the horse pond, so I looked for his line and followed it. The crop around me was full of little movements, and I imagined all the harvest mice and hares that were doubtless watching me walk through its tall stalks and wondering why I'd come. Ahead lay the black clump of alders that huddled around the water, the inky night sky strewn with bright stars above it and beyond. At the edge of the trees I called softly for Edmund, my corncrake, and he came immediately, appearing quietly at my feet. I picked him up and cradled him against my chest for a moment, and I couldn't help the tears from starting to my eyes, because I knew by his attendance on me there that everything I had suspected was all true, all true. I felt like a child all of a sudden. I felt so small and desolate, which was strange, as surely I should have felt at my most powerful then. I pressed my wet face into the bird's soft feathers and felt his heart beating in my palm, and I made myself think of the farm and of mother and grandma, of all that I loved and all that might yet be lost. I'm ready now, Edmund, I whispered at last, 
and set him down in the stubble, where he roused his feathers briefly and began to preen. And then I took off Frank's cardigan, folded it up neatly, and ducked under the alders to the weeds and flag irises at the margin of the pond. The water was chill at first, but by the time it was around my thighs it felt blood warm. The pond might have been shady, but the weather had been hot for weeks. With each step, my unlaced boots sank into the depthless mud beneath me, and at last I flung out my arms for balance, water arcing from them so that I wouldn't fall. I'd expected ducks or moorhens to explode from the margins as they would have had I gone into the pond by the house, but it seemed that no wildfowl made this pond their home. When the dark water was at my shoulders, I stopped and pushed my billowing nightdress down into the water and waited for the ripples to subside. I felt so clean all of a sudden, cleaner than I had since the fate and it was worth it just for that. I felt my breathing slow with the fading ripples, and let my awareness of the cornfield around me and the night sky return. At last, I breathed out all the air I could from my lungs, took two tiptoeing steps forward, closed my eyes, and let go. I've been talking to Melissa Harrison. We've been talking about her new novel, All Among the Barley, which is out later this week from Bloomsbury. Melissa, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.